This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for TV actors turned singers? Or did it just have the absolute most? Once again, it's time for the Idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of Mouseketeers. Nice. My name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend. He's also my co-host, and his name is Raymond, as far as you know. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to Facebook Live. So yeah, hey, every, hello to everybody on Facebook Live. We're actually on Facebook Live while we record this portion of the episode because, hey, why not? As we were just telling folks in the chat room here, we are hoping and planning, uh, trying not to get too ahead of ourselves, but we've got some things in the works where we're going to bring some guests on to answer questions and do an interview live, that sort of thing. But we got to make sure the technology works because ultimately we're too middle-aged. I almost said medieval. We're too medieval. <laughs> middle, we're not that old. Uh, middle-aged guys that are, you know, finding their way through the current technological landscape, right? Yeah, close enough. And greetings also to our 11% of listeners outside of the United States, including those in Canada, the UK, and Australia, which are the top three other places uh, other than the US where folks are listening to us. Okay, so on today's show, we're going to be talking about TV stars from the 1980s who tried their hand at singing. And we're met with uh, mixed, but mostly moderate to little success. Unlike our guest today, because on our the second half of our show, we're going to be speaking with Chase Hampton, original cast member of the all-new Mickey Mouse Club, which began in 1989. And unlike the songs we're going to be listening to today, Chase found success as a singer, as a member of The Party. But before we do any of that, let's get caught up on 80s news. All right, so hey, did you catch online the reunion of the Goonies as hosted by Josh Gad as part of the, I guess it was he was launching his online virtual series, Reunited Apart with Josh Gad, but on the very first episode, he had the Goonies cast. I heard about it and forgot to oh. check it out. All right, well, hey, you got to check it out. I don't want to, I'm going to tell you what happened somewhat. It's still cool to see anyway, but. Uh, there's probably a lot of other people. Ah. So don't spoil it for everybody else. It's not like it was a story, you know, like you get in, I'm not going to reveal who the bad guy was in the whole thing. The bad guy ultimately was technology because in addition to the cast, they also had on a number of other folks who worked on the film, including producer Steven Spielberg, which was a pleasant surprise. And the screenwriter, Chris Columbus. Yes, that Chris Columbus, the one who sailed the ocean blue. Uh, and also the director, Richard Donner, who unfortunately Richard Donner for a good portion of the show had to sit there just in silence because he couldn't hear anybody <laughs> and they couldn't hear him. And he just looked kind of befuddled as they were talking about these, sharing these great stories. But he joined by the end. Well, the comments are saying it was really good. So I'm going to have to watch it based off their opinions. Is this what this is going to come down to? That now I'm telling you this. I feel like this happens with my wife, <laughs> you know, and you're my show wife or am I the show wife? We're the show. Spe- you're my show I, spouse. I think you're my b- Oh, boy. You know, my wife, I will tell her something. Hey, you have this great idea. And she'll, yeah, that's okay, fine. Then like three days later, you know what someone at work told me about? It's the same thing. 
Okay, mm-hmm. right. Yes, you should definitely, whether you're listening to them or to me, you should check it out. It is, it was super I'm, cool. I'm listening to everyone. Okay. Everyone says it. I haven't seen any negative yet, so. Right, you're taking it all in and trying to make it so yes. sensitive. Okay. Uh, I'm making an educated, educated decision based off all the information I've gathered. All right, very good. Which is how I do everything. Okay. So, hey, another 80s news, some bad news. We had talked some time ago about uh, a possible, and maybe this is good news, a possible sequel to Labyrinth. And you, you know, pitch some ideas of what should, should, uh, it should be. At that time, the director was still Fede Alvarez, who brought us the reboot of The Evil Dead. As of the first of this month, May 1st, he clarified that he is no longer involved. So as far as we know, there is not a director for the sequel to Labyrinth. And maybe that's a good thing, because maybe it'll stop a sequel for Labyrinth from happening. Yeah, I'm hoping it just completely shuts this thing down, because I don't really want the, the sequel. I thought it would yep. be cool at first. Yeah, because they had some good ideas, but then the more I thought about it, the more I like it to not have a sequel. Yeah, we weren't sure that any of the original. Well, David Bowie obviously is no longer with us, but that the original cast would be with us to an extent, or the original characters would be part of it. So, yeah, that's a big question. So, I agree with you, um, but he said that ultimately he he quit because, and I quote here: "I just felt when people have a preconceived notion about what something should be, it's very hard to succeed to surprise them." End quote. So yeah, I mean, and that would be us. Yeah, we love Labyrinth. So if you're going to mess with it or try to connect something to it, you know, the bar is pretty high. Yeah, you got to have a master storyteller to pull stuff like that off. And I, I just haven't heard any of the ideas yet that are worth it. So so yeah, maybe good news. Uh, so in other 80s news, I may have a way to finally get you to consistently wear a face mask. Yeah, uh, get out of here. This is a good one. Uh, Tom Savini shared on Twitter recently that uh, he was wearing a face mask, a functional face mask, that is fashioned to look like the lower half of Jason Voorhees' mask from the Friday the 13th series. I won't even wear the idiot's mask. You know my opinion on the mask. I'm a fat guy. It's hard to breathe in the thing. Mm -hmm. I got to wear one at work for eight and a half hours a day right now, and it's killing me. So you're not interested in the half uh, Jason mask? No, I'd rather wear the idiot's mask that's available at Tee Public um, if you want to go and get one. Oh, shameless. So shameless. So it turns out Tom Savini mm-hmm. is not the designer of it. Now, of course, folks know Tom Savini is the legendary special effects man who made special effects for many films beginning before the 80s and certainly throughout the 80s. He's also appeared as an actor in a number of different films as well. But he was donning the mask, but it turns out he didn't create it. It was created by another uh, special effects artist, uh, a gentleman named some, Jason Baker. And He actually, on Twitter, uh, Tom Savini shared Jason's Twitter handle and said, if you want one, he's taking orders. So you can actually get one. Uh, for anyone, folks, who are interested, you could just... Uh, Hit up at Baking Jason is uh, his Twitter handle. I think that'd be cool. And I've seen some other folks, you know, having some nostalgic sort of masks. I wanted to have one that was the lower half of Darth Vader, but. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought it would be cool to have one until I had to wear one. And that's when it went south for me. But I like one of the, you know, the Jason mask would be cool as a collector's item is like when I'm showing it to my grandkids and they're like, what's that thing? And I'm like, mm-hmm. back, in, back in my day, mm-hmm. we had to walk uphill both ways to avoid the coronavirus. <sighs> you know how I feel about this. So if your, grand, if your grandkids are looking at it, it's because you bequeathed it to them in your last will and testament because you didn't wear the mask at work and then you died from the Rona. I will survive. Right. You know that. But you know a part of me wishes you wouldn't mm-hmm. just so I could go to your funeral and say, I told you so. Yeah, true. But I know you wouldn't get that message. No. All right. Hey, so uh, some uh, other bad news in 80s news is, you know, the the stadium tour that we were waiting for and hoping that would still be on, the one with Motley Crue, Def Leppard, Poison, Joan Jett, and the Blackhearts. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even said anything yet. I don't even, I don't want to hear it. Oh, I okay. don't want to hear, I have tickets for that. I don't want to hear that it's canceled. Oh, you do have tickets? I do have tickets for that. Oh, okay. So, um, July 3rd of all days. Yeah. So, uh, the mess, the message that we got a joint statement from all the bands saying that they, they wanted to reach out to the amazing fans and let you know that we weren't working hard on preparing an amazing show. Uh, our priority is during this unprecedented time is make sure that we're being as thoughtful and responsible as possible. And they conclude saying we are currently weighing all options and awaiting further direction from the powers that be. So it's not off. Uh, the timing may just change. I imagine as we see some other concerts getting rescheduled, but, um, you may, you may just be due a refund at some point too, but hopefully not. I think they spent the money and they don't want to do the refunds is why they're doing a reschedule. And I'm worried that Mick Mars ain't going to make it to the reschedule. What's up with him? Well, he, I think he's 105 years old. His head is fused to his spine because oh. he has a, he has a disease. Oh boy. You know, there would have been, yeah, there would have been fireworks on July 3rd. Mm. It would have been awesome. And now, you know what's going to happen? They're going to reschedule. It's going to be December 7th or mm-hmm. something in the middle of the week. And then I'm going to have to take vacation time because July 3rd, I already had the day off for 4th of July. It's just a nightmare mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. I was so excited and now it's just like pooping all over it. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah. I didn't have tickets, but I would like to have gone. That was, I don't go to a lot of concerts, but I think that would be one that get me to go out there. Um, and I'd be wearing my uh, half a Jason Voorhees mask. <laughs> okay. So in other 80s news and slightly related here, uh, there's a story that, uh, and I'm getting this from metalsludge.tv, metalsludge.tv. And metalsludge.tv writes that Motley Crue drummer, Tommy Lee, is angry with his fans for selling his autographs on eBay. Did you see this? I did not. Okay. So he thought, hey, writing autographs to specific people would keep people from selling them. And he's furious because no. It turns out that people are taking eBay and selling his personalized autographed items anyway. And as a result, he is done signing things. He wrote, I just want to do, do a public post saying that I'm done doing fan mail. I thought it was the right thing by addressing the fan mail to people by their names and they wouldn't be resold online. And now people are being so shady. They are writing out their names and reselling on eBay. If you're dumb enough to buy a Tommy Lee Oh. autographs picture with white out on it, <laughs> then you're just an ass. You, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. And he says that, but I, I did do a, I did do an eBay search for Tommy Lee autographs and I didn't see any with white out on them. Not apparently. <laughs> In fact, the opposite. I saw things written to specific people, you know, it's say Michael, Tommy Lee, et cetera, and so on. I, I think he's just being silly. It's just him going crazy and ready to go play show. So he, he, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, John Henderson says he'd prefer they sell them on Bay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and he, he, he made somewhere in the comment, too, something about hours wasted. He said, I hope that the folks that got them enjoyed it, but... If somebody shows up with a bag of crap, and he's like, <laughs> can you make this out to Tommy? Yeah. Can you make this out to Johnny? Can you make this out to Jimmy? I got a lot of kids. Yeah, I, I got a lot of friends and families. Can you sign this, this garbage bag full of stuff? I mean, fans. obviously, he's selling it. If it's a dude who shows up with a shout of the devil cassette and says, can you sign this? He's probably not going to sell it. Yep. I mean, it's common sense. There's not a lot, not a lot of common sense anymore. All right. Hey, that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. So, hey, uh, a little bit later, we're going to be speaking with Chase Hampton. Again, original, uh, all new Mickey Mouse Club Mouseketeer and also a member of the party. Uh, but uh, before that, you and I are going to talk about other TV actors turned singers who didn't have the success that Chase ultimately found in the 90s as a singer and performer. 
Um, and there's so many of them. And this is not a new thing, right? I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Famously, folks remember hearing albums from William Shatner. Uh, we even had one from Leonard uh, Nimoy that... Uh, yes, uh, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite songs of all time. Yes, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that song. Mm, all right, so people, you know that. And uh, uh, m- more recently, we've seen other folks do, do the same thing. Hugh Laurie, you know, uh, who's in film and TV actors, had albums. And uh, Donald Glover uh, has made has had quite uh, success as uh, Childish Gambino. So anyway, it's been happening for a long time, and in the 80s, there are a bunch of folks who took their shot at it, and again, some of them had success, many of them didn't. So I've got some examples here for you. I don't know, it's less than a dozen, eight or seven or eight. All right. What I thought I would do for you is, I'll play them for you. You might know them right off the bat. Many of them you will, but we'll talk about them otherwise, and if you need clues... Uh, I love clues. All right. Clues are awesome. Okay, so here is uh, the first one, and I'm not going to give you any clues yet, and just see if you can identify it. Just do it. it. Just do something. All right. It's now... That sounds like Elvis. Mm. <laughs> Kiss me, my darling. Be mine tonight. I'm gonna say Tom Wopat. Oh man, you were so close. Was it Bo? Yes. Damn it. It was John Schneider. So of course he had already been on the Dukes of Hazard since 1979, but in 1981. He released an album where he did a cover, which included this cover of Elvis Presley's It's Now or Never. And yes, he does sort of emulate the style of the king. Yes. But um, so obviously he had some, he had found huge success as a star of uh, the Dukes of Hazard. Uh, and then in 1981, he had this song come out that uh, it, it charted on, U, on, the, on the U.S. Uh, Billboard charts and also on the country charts. On the, on the U.S., straight up U.S. charts, it reached number 14 and was the highest charting song that he's had. He's had some other greater success on, on country charts, but uh, uh, on the straight up U.S. chart, this was his big hit. He's had a lot of good albums. Yeah. If you're a country fan, you know John's yes. albums. And I, yes, and many of them are far exceeded uh, the success of this one. Okay, uh, I'm going to give you, let's see, I'll give you another one here. I think you'll get it by the chorus. Dude, it sounds like REM. Crazy. But now you're looking at me. You're the only one I can think of. This is an actor? You might not know him here. Listen to this part here. Is it Dirk right, Diggler? I'll give you some clues, okay? Because this is this might be a little bit of a stretch for you. And uh, oh, wait a minute, we got an answer oh, in the comments. Okay. It's Jack Wagner. Jack Wagner, that's right. Yeah, Nancy got yes, that. Yeah. One. Carrie's got that. James has got that. Everybody's got it but me. <laughs> Where typical. were you? This was a huge hit. It's typical. I don't even know who. What did? What was? Was he on a soap yes. opera? Is that where Does he's from? I remember his character's name. Hmm, I guess I'd have to wait 15 <laughs> seconds before someone told me. So I'll, I'll talk about it generally here. So he was on General Hospital. And on General Hospital, he was actually the singer of a fictional band, uh, Blackie and the Riff Raff. <laughs> that wasn't enough for him, because it turns out that he wanted to try and stand up being an actual rock star, too. So uh, in 1984, he released this song, All I Need, which I'm surprised <laughs> you don't remember that. I never watch soap operas, so how the hell would I get that one right? Hmm. 
Was he in any like B movies or horror movies mm. or comedies or any movie? No, n- nothing you would have ever watched. No. <laughs> but the song itself was produced by Glenn Ballard. The album was produced mm. by Glenn Ballard of the same name, uh, All I Need. Um, which Glenn Ballard, as you recall, he's produced a number of hits since before and since, and most recently was working. He's the uh, co-writer uh, of the music and lyrics for the Back to the Future, the musical that he's co-writing with uh, Alan Silvestri. Um, the song reached number two in 1985, uh, and there was another song that kept it from reaching the top, well, Madonna's Like a Virgin. At least Like a Virgin's a real song, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here is another one. Again, these were, now, you know, the one thing about these were, these were hits. Yeah, they sound like hits, yeah. <laughs> There's a couple on here that, oh my gosh, I don't even want to. They get worse? Uh, Are you kidding I'm gonna me? Give you a, I'm going right. to give you a layup here for you, I, th- I think. Can, yeah, give me a softball here. Yeah, I'll just sound awful. <laughs> you at least recognize that voice, though, right? I don't know. I don't. Okay. All right. Is it Bruce Willis? It's not Bruce Willis. It is. It's Bruce Willis. Oh, yes, is it? That's absolutely right. Okay. Well, I I accidentally got that one right. <laughs> Ah, boy. Okay, so yeah, Bruce Willis. Yeah, so of course he was on Moonlighting from 85 to 89, which he earned an Emmy Award for, Outstanding Lead Actor, but that was not enough for him. (laughs) What are you laughing at over there? The second it started playing, they all knew it was Bruce Willis. I see. Um, So in 1987, Motown, yeah, yeah, that Motown, Mm -hmm. released this Bruce Willis record, uh, which included this cover of the classic R&B song that was originally performed Uh. by the Staple Singers. Respect yourself. If I played you the Staple Singer version, you'd know it, you'd love it. Bruce Willis, okay, it's a little bit highly, highly doubtful, but whatever. And Bruce had a lot of uh, talented, well established artists helping him create this album. In fact, on that song alone, he, ha- he uh, includes a duet with June Pointer and has backing vocals by the Pointer sisters. It peaked at number five on the US Billboard Hot Singles chart and number seven on the UK Singles chart. I thought this was funny. A review of the album uh, in February of 1987. People Magazine gave it an, a B plus, at, while calling another song on the album uh, Willis's cover of "Under the Bar- Boardwalk" quote surprisingly okay. Uh, that's how I would describe it. Also, the review also went on to say that he it shows us that he can't shout songs quite as well as Don Johnson. Oh, is Don Johnson on this list? Uh, maybe, maybe. Of course. Uh, so this was released in '87, and then the next year, in 1988, in June of that, July of that year, he would become John McClane, and everybody would forget about his short-lived uh, success there. So yeah, you so, say, hey, you got that one right. Okay, so you got one yeah, out of three. One out of three ain't okay, bad. So here is your. Isn't that a meatloaf song? Eh, close. <laughs> All right. Here, maybe you're just bad at songs altogether. Well, no. If it was a heavy metal or death metal, I know you'd, nah, you'd be yeah, punk you. Rock you give me hair song. metal or punk rock, and or like maybe thrash, then I'll be all right. That would be no fun for me, though. Yeah, I know. You, you don't get to make me look like a... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, here's another one. And uh, again, this is a, a performer that was on television in the 1980s. Successful. And they had this song, which was also successful. Is, is this person from a sitcom or another soap opera? She was originally from... All right, I'll give you some clues. Give me some was, clues here. Yes. Okay, so her first claim to fame was she was on a comedy show in the UK. And then in the US, she was in a sketch comedy show. Really? 
that also brought her much success. Uh, Victoria Jackson. Nope. Okay, how about if I told you this without looking at the comments? I already looked at the comments because I wasn't going to get it. Okay. But they all know. Okay. They're really smart. The com- and you know, I need a comment section on every show because I would be <laughs> so much better at this. Oh, God, our show is going to be boring then if, if people actually help us know things. <laughs> it's funny that, you know, you say they know because the actual name of this Tracy Ullman song is They Don't Know. Well, but, they, but they do know. They know. Yeah, you don't know. This should be I really have no crazy. idea what's going on. This song should be Ray Don't Know. I'm going to record a song Ray Don't Know. Yeah. So, of course, uh, Tracy Ullman of the Tracy Ullman Show, which was, uh, you know, a, a groundbreaking sketch comedy show for, for lots of reasons, uh, the least of which the, the fact that it introduced the world to The Simpsons. In this song, of course, emulates the style of a 1960s, uh, you know, sort of old school group. It's actually a cover song of a song that was released, uh, that was recorded uh, a little bit earlier by uh, artist uh, Kirsty McCall. Tracy Ullman's version reached number two in the UK, but it was held off from reaching number one by uh, Karma Chameleon. Ah, that's a tough break there. It also reached number eight in the United States, uh, and McCall, who sang the original song, actually did backing vocals on Ullman's version. And in 2016, of the Karma Chameleon uh, stealing its uh, her number one spot, she, Tracy said, I was really pissed off. I mean, I wore that pink Lorex miniskirt for weeks with all the dry ice on flipping top of the pops, and I still didn't make it. It still hurts. So, so she honestly thinks that song deserved to be number one over Karma Chameleon. Yeah. In her opinion. Actually a good song. Larsis. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Ray don't know. <laughs> Ray don't know. But in fairness, of yeah. the four songs you've played me so far, yes. Moonlighting's the only show I watched out of any of them people's shows. So. Okay, so... So I, I think you sat down and intentionally sabotaged me mm. on this one. Maybe. That would be fun. All right, so let me see. Let me see if there's any other... See, but I could pick... So I don't know if you've ever seen this show before. All right, I'm going to give you another uh, softball here, all right? Is it Don Johnson? Oh, my goodness! <laughs> what gave it away? Did I said it was a softball? I knew he was coming. I knew he was coming. All right, so yeah, I'm going to just play a few seconds more of that here. <laughs> I wanted to hear if he was, in fact, better than Bruce Willis, since that uh, review from uh, uh, the... That's close. I, I think they're both real close. Yep. They're both tolerable. <laughs> if, if it was... If I was in a bar and somebody played it on the jukebox, yep. I wouldn't be irate and mm. immediately run over there and put quarters in and play, like, you know, a really long song like 20 times in a row just to make sure they never play another song by them. So this makes me curious now, what song has you uh, finding, finding someone in a, in a bar because they put it on a jukebox or you are pulling a cord on the jukebox? Uh, maggot brain. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am. I am. I am not only not familiar with that. I would, I would really be suspicious if that was in a jukebox somewhere. That song is like a half hour long. Oh, I see. Okay. I see. And one time, uh, uh, James can attest to this story. James played drums in the band I was with at the time. This guy came to our practice and grabbed a guitar and said, hey, let me play you something. And he started playing Maggot Brain, which I was like, whatever. And it's like a half hour long. He played the whole damn song. And is I was it, like, what the hell? Is it, a, is it like a classical piece of music in the sense that- No, uh, it's it, garbage. But, but I mean that it unfolds it's, over it's, time, it's, or is it like a- No, no. It repeats it's a, a lot. It's and, a sprawling bunch of crap oh. that I don't know how anybody likes. It's garbage. Right, I hate it. So yeah, you don't want to hear uh, Maggot Brain. 
right. Yeah, put that on the list of stuff you're going to play for me next week. <laughs> <laughs> Songs that tick Ray off. All right, where are we at All right, here? So here, I've got another one for you. Now, I can't guarantee you've ever seen this show either. And I'm even... Oh, jeez. Uh, Where's Eddie Murphy? And I even don't even want to play this song, but, you know, I'm committed to it. All right, so I'm going to play it anyway. Here we go. Let me see if I can find it here. All right, here we go. Well, no, see, Eddie Murphy was a huge movie star. We're doing TV shows. Oh, oh I got confused. That's a whole other episode. That's tomorrow. We'll do that. All right, here we go. Swing. <laughs> Now I know I'm dreaming. How do I get to sleep? I'll count those bars on the window. I like how long these intros are. That's not even an intro. This is the song. All right, I want to know if any, is there anybody in the room and Facebook Live that could get that one right? Uh, somebody's got Hasselhoff. No, it wasn't Hasselhoff. I, I think we, we will send a t-shirt, an idiot's t-shirt. I to got, the person uh, who gets I that see right. a Max Headroom. Henderson! Henderson. It's always, step aside, Henderson. Goddamn Henderson. <laughs> In fact, it is Max Headroom. Yeah, thank, thanks for setting me up with garbage tonight. Well, the, thanks a lot. <laughs> the most disappointing uh, thing about this is that the music is actually created by a really terrific uh, group. Art of Noise, you know, so Art of Noise was, I don't know if they were huge in the 80s, but they had a following, and I, I liked Art of Noise a lot. There was a couple of songs that were hits, you know, within their particular charts. Uh, Beatbox comes to mind, uh, Close to the Edit was another really good song. So they provided this song for, for Max Headroom. Of course, Matt Frewer is the actor who plays the character, so he was providing those vocals that you heard there where he's talking about uh, whether he's dreaming or asleep or not. The song is called Paranoimia. Um, of course, Max Headroom first began as a movie in the UK, a film that was created for Channel 4 to provide a backstory for Max Headroom. The film was called Max Headroom 20 Minutes into the Future, and they only created this because they wanted to have their own MTV in the UK. So to make it more interesting, they created this character, Max Headroom, who was going to introduce the music videos. Hmm. And, and then, they, so they did that, and then immediately they, they, the Max Headroom you know, show with the music videos started the next day, I think, after the film. Of course, you know, a short time after that is when uh, we get our own version of the Max Headroom TV show here in the U.S., which ran from 87 to 88. But this Max Headroom song, uh, let's see, uh, it, well, I don't have the number, but it did crack the top 40, I have my note here, in October of 1986. Huh. Maybe it was a chart for the worst songs. Man, this was this was harsh. Um I do want to play this one to you for a very particular reason. And then there's a couple of, let's say, runner-ups that mm. don't fit into this uh, category because they actually had, mm. uh, well, one had some s- more success, let's say. Uh, All right. I'm going to give you some clues for this one right off the top right here, okay? All right. Is it a soap opera? It's not a soap opera. All right. Well, we're off to a good start All then. Right. This actor was recruited in Texas by talent scouts who were, who, who were looking for children. Is it Todd Bridges? Interested in peering... <sighs> In a TV show. Uh, the TV show that she was on ran from 1977 to 1978. All right. Even though it only, the show was only actually cre- produced for six months, they wound up extending the life of it by recutting it, re- re-editing it for a lot longer than it was shot. Uh-huh. All right. All right. You got it already? No, I don't. <laughs> okay. Then, and why do you say, well, hey, she was in a show in the 70s. Why am I bringing this up? Because in 1979, she starred in an ensemble sitcom that ran until 1988. All right, so and here hmm. is her song. Looking at the screen, who's that staring back at me? Is that the person I'm supposed to be? 
I'm going to guess. All right. Um, Kim Fields. I have no, oh, wow. no clue, man. All right. That's really close. Okay. So the, the actual, does anyone have an answer? Nobody has an answer. No one's getting on. This is a hard one. And I think this is particularly hard because I don't think it sounds like her. Was it Blair? It was Blair. Lisa Weltrill. Yes. Hey, I had the right show. I had a character from the right show. Yes. So, so of course, Lisa Welcher, who at age 12 was recruited to be on the new Mickey Mouse Club. So in the 70s, they went to reboot the 90, popular 1950s Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, again, it was short-lived, like I said. And then ultimately, she starred in The Facts of Life. So this song is All Because of You. Uh, and it was a song that reached uh, number 17 on the Billboard Contemporary Christian Music Chart. It was also nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Inspiration Performance. What supposed to be best inspirational performance? Either way, she ultimately lost to Donna Summers' Forgive Me, and she did not record another album after that. All right, so there's that. All right, so here's, here's another one. All right. You'll get this one, I think. How am I supposed to get these? I'm just randomly trying to remember now you're just, yeah, 80s what stars? sitcoms. Now, wasn't this, yeah, this was not mean, a sitcom? It's not a sitcom? No, it's not a sitcom. Uh, so, I hear is it clues. a newscaster? This actor was on a hit NBC TV show that ran from 1982 to 1986. All right. The song is so terrible that even his artificially intelligent car wouldn't play it. <laughs> is that Hasselhoff this time? Yes, it's the Hoff. God damn. Yes. After his successful run on television, he went on in 1989 to uh, uh, release this album, Looking for Freedom, and that we just played you the title track, Looking for Freedom, that went triple platinum in Europe. Hmm. It hit number one in Germany. I was just going to say, he's big in Germany. Yeah, so this is actually a song that was originally a song that was performed by two artists in, in Germany. One of them had greater success than the other, but then um, the Hoff... Uh, as someone is saying on, on Facebook here, the Hoff uh, ultimately found even greater success by recording this uh, English uh, version of it. And some of the interesting things about it is, you know, he did perform it uh, at the Berlin Wall on New Year's Eve in 1989, two months after the East government uh, had opened the wall, but it was still nine months before unification. Uh, and that performance, you got to look it up because it's just, uh, it's so 1980s. Yeah. He's yeah, wearing, well, you know what? Yeah. If we have the Hoff on our show, yeah. I'm only talking about Knight Rider. Yeah, not going to bring this up. I, I'm not talking about music. Pretend like him. he wasn't a singer. No, I'm going straight to Knight Rider. I want to know what the car was like and all that stuff. I don't want to know how big he is in Germany. Yeah. Well, if you look up the video in it, he's, he's wearing a piano keyboard scarf and a leather jacket covered in motion lights. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> did that just give you a migraine? <laughs> yeah, I think this, this whole thing is giving me a migraine because <laughs> these are like the worst songs I've ever heard. I have never heard any of these except right. maybe, maybe the Bruce Willis one. I think I might have heard. I think I might have actually listened to the to the Bruno album, but that was that was. 20. Yep, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to watch my language because 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 this is this is very upsetting. Oh, okay. Whatever. The next quiz I give you, uh, you you better be ready because it's gonna be it's gonna be awful. <laughs> it's gonna be all thrash and death metal and punk rock. It's gonna be, it's gonna be horrible. It's like I don't know that one either. <laughs> all right, so I have one last thing for you. So I want I was originally when I was putting this list together thinking, heck, I'll play you something from Rick Springfield, right? Because he was another actor turned singer. I love Rick Springfield. Yeah, so, but here's the thing: 
I don't think he fit nicely enough to my into this category of actors, TV actors turned singers, because it turns out he was actually a member of a pop rock group long before he was an actor. In 1969 through 1971, he was a member of the pop rock group Zoot. I've told you before that if he yes. came to town, I would go see him. I, yeah. I like Rick Springfield. He's a good musician. And, and Rick Springfield is an Australian musician and actor. And so uh, shortly after that, he had started his solo career with his debut single, Speak to the Sky, which reached number 10 in Australia in 1972. This is before he even comes to the United States. So so I threw that out. Even though he had Jesse's Girl, even though he won a Grammy in 1982, even though he was on some soap opera. No. So instead, though, when looking for that, I came across something else more interesting. Oh, you did, huh? I'm play you a song. <laughs> Great. I'm going to play you a song. I'm super excited. <laughs> I'll give you clues if you need them. This song is called, maybe if I tell you, the, you know, I'm not going to tell you the name. I'll play it for you. Just play the, just play the song. Every one of these guys sounds exactly the same. This is impossible. <laughs> it's the 80s. All right, okay. All right, so... Seriously, how am I supposed to guess that? When it, I, I, I could guess Michael J. Fox. I could say Kirk Cameron. I could say any one of those guys. Here. This song is called Eat Your Heart Out, Rick Springfield. Okay, that doesn't help me at all. Okay, this was a character from uh, WWF Wrestling. You, you're throwing wrestlers at me now? <laughs> this <is> TV. <laughs> hey, James, help me out on this one. Oh, looks like he's chiming in. Yep, James has got it. Well, of course he does. It's the, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. So I didn't remember. I thought maybe you'd remember, but that uh, they actually, the, so the WWF had this album that they came out with, and uh, Jimmy Hart's had some, you know, sort of, I don't want to say parody songs, but comical songs, and this was one of them. But it, it turns out, he doesn't even fit perfectly in. I just wanted to play that because I think it was awful. And um, In my opinion, though, yeah. he's no worse than any of the other ones. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But Jimmy Hart actually fails to really meet the, the, the high standards I put together for this actors turned singers because even though he was an actor in wrestling, it turns out, check this out, before, long before he was in wrestling, as a teenager, he was a vocalist for a 1960s band called The Gentries, oh. who had a million-selling record in 1965, Keep On Dancing. Yeah, well, there you go. And he, and he was such a great musician and composer that he composed many of the theme songs for the wrestlers, including music for Honky Tonk Man. I was just going to ask, did, did he write Honky Tonk Man's uh, yes. signature theme song there? Brutus the Barber Beefcake song. Uh, the Hart Foundation, Dusty Rhodes, Ted DiBiase, Hulk Hogan, and many more. He wrote the theme for SummerSlam 88, which has been since been reused for the theme for many of the Royal Rumbles as well. Wow. All right. <laughs> I've exhausted you. <laughs> okay, so hey, in just a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, original cast member of the all-new Mickey Mouse Club and talented and successful singer as member of the party, Chase Hampton. Once again, it's time for Our 
guest today was an original cast member of the all-new Mickey Mouse Club, the Disney Channel's 1989 revival of the iconic 1950s TV show with a similar name. It was there that he dazzled audiences throughout the first few seasons as a young teen by demonstrating his charm and his many, many talents. And during the middle of the show's run, our guest, along with some of his fellow castmates, was tapped to form the wildly popular teen pop group, The Party. In addition to hit songs, The Party boasted a veritable who's who of musical producers, including Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Teddy Riley. But not having moved too far from his roots, our guest returned to the MMC in its final season this time as an adult co-host, where he appeared alongside other future stars like Ryan Gosling. And ever since those early years, our guest has continued to sing, dance, and delight audiences everywhere. Please welcome to the show, Chase Hampton. Hey, Chase, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm wonderful. I'm uh, doing the best I can with... Uh two toddlers running around uh, trapped in my house. <laughs> oh boy, yes. We, so many of us, obviously, all of us have to be, you know, at home for so, so many uh, hours now with, with our family in a way that uh, we, we aren't usually. Uh, and so many folks complaining about, you know, I've got this and that, but wow, that's a real challenge that you would have had maybe otherwise anyway. Right. Um, it's, I mean, obviously it's a blessing to, to yes. be kind of have that, that time with your family. I mean, I think that's something uh, the whole world probably needed, uh, kind of a reset in that aspect. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Yes. We'll just take the grat gratitude there and just suck it up, I guess, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I've been grateful for the time and also knowing where my family is so I know they're safe, you know? Right. So, hey, thanks for joining us. So we had hoped to talk at some point in the future. We were able to get together a lot more quickly than that because we learned how truly passionate your fans are. And you know this already. <laughs> And I know this somewhat because my, my cousin, my cousins, Roseanne and Nancy are like presidents of some MMC fan club or, you know, they're hardcore. They were at the reunion last year, all that stuff. Nice. So nice. So I knew that already. But when we had a faux pas, when someone on our staff post a picture asking about the season one cast, because, you know, we were marking an anniversary, asked, can you name the cast, posted a picture of a much later season. I think it was nah. season four. I, I'm not going to let anybody go under the bus for that. That yep. was me. Okay. So, I did that. So, so nobody goes under the bus. That was me. And he he had no idea what he had done. No, I, <laughs> I, I started a whole snowball down the hill thing. It was horrible. The oh, ire. my God. I can only imagine it. And people are stuck at home, so they want to lash out right now, man. You really <laughs> yes. set the trap. <laughs> I we, did. We had no idea how many MMC fans we had in our group until then. You know, and then they all came forward. So, so thank you. So, in speaking to the fans, they know a lot about you already. So, I'm hoping maybe we could touch base on some things that maybe you haven't been asked over and over again because there's, you know, you're so gracious with your time and have spoken so many uh, interviews about so much of your history. So, there's some little things in there that I think may be interesting to try to fill in. And also, we did get some fan questions that hopefully we'll be able to work into because um, a lot of folks had uh, some things they wanted to ask you. Starting off, I, I note that, um, you know, before you even began, certainly before you appeared on the show, you were already very talented. You know, you were dancing, singing, uh, tap dancing, even juggling. You you rode a unicycle. You did some. You were a clown. And I know. And I I saw a comment you made in one uh, interview that oftentimes these were parts of competitions that you would travel around to do. Right. Right. Yeah. Was it the competition that drove you, or was it the performance that drove you? What is it that drove you? I suppose to learn so many different and interesting skills. 
I, you know, that's a, <clears throat> a great question. I can only theorize, you know, some of us are kind of, kind of pop into the world as extroverts and some of us are introverts and some people kind of find their home in the theater when they don't really fit in in society. You know what I mean? Every, yeah. Everybody kind of finds their, their place. And um, being a redhead, I didn't really have a lot of, not, not that that's really the case, but yeah. um, I kind of stuck out in my own little, in my own mind, uh, in my own little location in Oklahoma. Um, and it was easy to pick on or easy to kind of, you know, ostracize. I wasn't like the jock or anything like that. So right. uh, it just, it's just something that I kind of fell into and I realized I was good at really quickly I realized that's what got me attention. You know, it wasn't maybe my good looks. It was that I could, you know, all of a sudden sing and everyone, and all of a sudden all the pretty girls would, would have, I'd have their attention, you know, right. <laughs> like, oh, I like, I like this. <laughs> um, but there was a thing in, in Oklahoma called uh, Oklahoma kids. And, um, a lot of people have actually went, went into that. And even Blake Shelton, um, got his startup in there. Um, but it was a nonprofit that, you know, would, would just get kids and they would do these levels of competition all over Oklahoma and uh, and you'd have to kind of pass each level and get to the state finals. And then at the state finals, they would, you know, uh, put it on the air on locally. So it was like a big deal to Oklahoma. It's, it was hard always in our minds to get out of Oklahoma. Like we were never going to get out of Oklahoma if you were a performer. So it was almost had, like you really had to love, love to do it. And, um, you know, just like with anything, whether you're in the military or whether you're, uh, you know, in sports, you know, you kind of fall in love with the team aspect of uh, and the brotherhood of you know, those kinds of things. And, and being in those competitions, I met so many, so many people. I'm sure you read, read that, that part of it, but I, you know, I'd meet so many different people that, you know, I, I came in as a singer and then I realized, well, Hey, I could dance and I got a dance scholarship and all of a sudden started winning, winning the dance. And then I was like, Oh, there's variety. Let's do variety. And, you know, there were people there that were jugglers or fire breathers or, you know, they were into karate or whatever they were into. And you could just, you know, hang out with them backstage and kind of, Hey, show me how to do that. Wow. And so walking out of that experience, whether I competed doing that or not, I walked away with so many random skills, you know, hey, hey, let me see your unicycle for a second. I want to try it out. <laughs> you know, after a couple of weeks, you know, you could go a couple of feet. I have to get one now. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to remember back back then there wasn't like you know, now, now we're spoiled rotten. I mean, back then, if you wanted to ride a unicycle, you had to you actually had to seek out someone who rode a unicycle, you know, find them and then find their kind of alley of how they how they found their unicycle you know mm. you couldn't just hop on google or hop on the internet and go hey where's my you know and then all of a sudden 10 searches come up you know you really had to kind of do that so falling into all those little weird eclectic things i did i think actually helped add to my toolbox when that big moment came for the mickey mouse club honestly right you you hung around a lot of interesting people right mm-hmm so have you ever tried to breathe fire? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You did. I'm not good at it. It's, it's That's scary <laughs> stuff. I have, a, I have a really good friend that's a professional at that. So I've tried mm-hmm. it once. And I, and I have another friend that does it in bars, which is crazy. Um, but, yeah, I, I do a lot of the other stuff. I'm, I'm into a lot of the other stuff, just the juggling stuff, the dangerous stuff, not so much. I can juggle fire. Um, I do fireballs where the balls are actually lit as they're hitting your hands. Um, fire poi. Uh, fire clubs, a lot of that stuff. But yeah, breathing is scary only because I'm a singer, and if it goes the wrong way, it really goes the yeah. wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as far as like a, a Mickey Mouse Club member, you're the tough guy then. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know. There's a, there's a bunch. There's a bunch of tough guys. Because <laughs> he could breathe fire on someone, Ray. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> if you play with fire, you're a tough guy. Oh, I see. My my, uh, my uh, probably better thing I can do right now is uh, I work on, and I do it more for meditation because it's honestly just fun. Is uh, cracking whips. Wow. I guess that's my the, the Oklahoma in me, but I got two ten foot whips that I cracked, so that might make me scary. Well, yeah. Do you, 
and we know, and speaking of your, your big moment, yeah, um, we know that you didn't actually audition to be on the Mickey Mouse Club because it didn't exist at the time that you were auditioning for a different project, which was a, a film. That's true. And That's true. So, but, you know, when we think about most performers, most uh, actors, you know, oftentimes we hear stories about uh, films or, or television shows that inspired them to, to, to go to that first audition or to pursue that line of, uh, you know, that career. Were there films or television shows growing up at that young age even that made you interested in being a performer? I was a real, like, singing in the rain guy, you know? I really loved oh, yeah. and Footloose and then Fame and all the fun, like, you know, the guy who could dance was the cool guy, you know? Because right. sometimes the dancer, you know, being a dancer in, a, in Oklahoma or, in, in you know, in Midwest or, you know, anywhere, it's just sometimes it's not the cool, the cool route, um, even, even though us as dancers know it is the cool route because it, you know, it helps with so many things, you know? Sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, you know, and, and you got to remember in 1988, uh, I think it was 88, 89, there was a humongous writer strike. Uh, and sure. it was kind of much like TV is now where you're just seeing reruns and that was, it was bad. All the, the late shows were on reruns and that's what they were. I was auditioning for a movie called why, because we like you then. And yeah, it got canceled because, they just didn't know what to do. All the writers were on strike and um, they already had the cast for it. And at that point they were saying, well, you know what? We're still doing this. We're still going to move forward. Disney was such a huge corporation. They could continue to move forward. We're going to move forward with, with this TV show called the Mickey Mouse Club. Obviously bring back the old, you know, retro Mickey Mouse Club and, and do that all over again. But, you know, it was what it was, what it was really serving at that time, looking back, is that they needed this space filled in their, tv studio theme park you know what right. i mean they they need so we were serving to to you know things right there we were serving the disney channel which was like okay cool we'll be on tv but they also really wanted us in this space so all the thousands of people that were coming through the studio could see a live working set could see this monstrosity of a set they built for us which was <laughs> you know which in hollywood you wouldn't have gotten really especially on a new show like that they just you know to have a budget like that they had the budget because they were using it for two purposes you know right and then I think the Disney Channel, you know, knowing that it was a subscription service back then, they they were watching the subscriptions come in and why, and they realized they had a hit on their hands with uh, with that at, the, at that time. Right. Yeah. And for folks who don't know, don't know, MGM Studios had the the, the uh, at the theme park. Uh, you know, essentially Disney had licensed the, the name to be able to call it MGM Studios. What's now known as Disney Hollywood Studios in '88 or '89 opened. That's what Chase is referring to, which was a draw for the parks. And yeah, provided this uh, opportunity to have these shows actually shot there as well. Yeah, and it was wild. They could see everything. They were watching us at all times, you know. So so folks in the parks could see you filming the, the television show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were watching. There was a backlot tour. So uh, there was there was uh, like a, a balcony that was glass, you know, encased in glass and all that. We couldn't see them, but they could always see us. Oh, wow. And they were always walking through and... and there's a tour guide taking them through and introducing what our set was. And there were other sets that were going on at that time. Yeah. But ours was kind of the, the living set that was always there. Um, but that, but that tour also went around to like the Foley stage and then the recording studio. So if we were, we were down the street in the recording studio, there's still one wall that's glass. And all of a sudden you could just barely see all these people, <laughs> you know, all these kind of shadows of people. And you're like, Oh my God, that's so crazy. I can imagine any other workplace, like having people just touring it to behind a secret glass, you know? Oh yeah. when you're a kid, you can only imagine what's going on. <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden you're like, you're like, stop picking your nose, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> So you said, you know, so you mentioned, obviously, so they were looking to bring back, you know, the, 
Ray and I have talked about this on the show's show many times that in the eighties and even towards the end of the eighties there, so much of the pop culture that we developed throughout the nineteen eighties was a throwback to the fifties because the folks that were in charge of making things and our parents and families, that's what they were interested in seeing because it was from their childhood. So yep. they were interested in bringing back that uh, the, the nostalgia, you know, leveraging the nostalgia from that show from the 1950s. But there was also, a, as you know, there was a short-lived uh, Mickey Mouse Club, the new Mickey Mouse Club in the 1970s, which mm-hmm. I think it only was on for six months, but it ran for a few years because they kept uh, an syndication and kept recutting it. Do you remember mm-hmm. that show at all? Were you too young to... Uh, I was too young. I was yep. too young to watch it. I was watching some of the shows those people were on, like, you know, The Facts of Life or right. whatever. But uh, yeah, I was too young to see that. Did you otherwise, though, appreciate the significance of the Mickey Mouse Club, the legacy, when you were getting getting oh, cast at that age? Absolutely, and and you know the seventies. I mean, sorry, the, yeah, the the eighties one had it had it right. When did it come out exactly? Do you remember the seventies one was seventy seven? I think seventy seven. Okay, so when that one came out, I think they had their first African American uh, members, okay. and you could start to see how they were doing. You know, they were getting diversive and inclusive, right? And you know. You know, Dale and I talk about this, one of the guys on the show, um, right. just how amazing that is, that that was literally built into us as children, uh, that we grew up in this atmosphere. We were going to school together, working out together, going to counseling. I mean, we right. were living in this. In fact, we all left our hometown. So our only friends were each other. We had to be, kind of befriend each other, whether we liked, liked each other <laughs> or not. It was all we had. But that really, uh, you know, made us kind of a lot of us who we are and, you know, and even built the Justin Timberlakes and the Ryans and the right. Christinas and and helped them pursue some of the some of the things they do probably behind the scenes with helping people out and the philanthropy. And we were always putting people on the show and, and uh, highlighting them for their good deeds, whether it was for the environment right. um, and just, you know, just the racial aspect of it. I mean, we literally had short fat, no teeth, you know, we were literally going through puberty on there. I mean, there was, there was somebody, and this is why these people are very, um, you know, quick to answer on on those posts is because they grew up with us and there was always one person that they could relate to. It wasn't just like this perfect cast of, of beautiful people. There was just literally someone you could relate to. So if you, and I, I can tell you, I I mean, a couple of years ago, you know, no one usually comes up to me and says, you're on the Mickey Mouse Club or whatever. But I, I'm literally in Boston or in, in Saugus, yep. you know, ran, and I have a, a skull cap on, a big coat. And I come in holding my uh, my baby just, you know, with a, a car seat. And my wife was there. And this lady looks at me. She's like, Chase. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Hello. Yeah. I thought maybe she was calling us to our table or whatever. And she's like, and then she just froze. And her husband started talking. And she was like, nice to meet you at the end. And then I literally, I got to my table and I got a little message and there was this long message from this girl who I just met in the, you know, waiting for my table. And uh, she was literally saying, you know, I was the, I was from, from a small town. I was, a, I was, I'm black. I'm from a small town and I was adopted. I had zero friends. Wow. I was bullied. You were the only people that literally kept me alive, you know, and what a blessing it is to meet you. And, and it really hit me like, you know, the the way these people took because we were on the show and you know obviously we had this amazing experience outside of what people were watching us but now as an adult realizing the impact that we had on some of these people and and that was disney you know being smart you know they really were now it's kind of cool and and 
in, in kind of cliche to be inclusive and diverse, even though we all should be, right? right. But you know, you hear people dropping those words. It's like a hot word right now. Right. And we were we were literally doing that 30 years ago, and then of course the 70s version was doing it even before that. Right. I think that's truly important. That's what it. That's what it is to be an ambassador for Disney, or it should be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. And I, I do remember reading that they in the 1970s they they you know they, they actively pursued having a more diverse cast. Right. You know, looking back on everything that had changed in the decades since the 1950s uh, program. Yeah, um, and we had Latino and Filipino, and we literally right. taught each other stuff. We were literally we were teaching each other each other's religions and each other's cultures, and it was it's truly amazing. You know, you, you mentioned all the folks that came out of the show. Um, it, it, and there's, you know, statistically speaking, it seems like there's a large number of folks like yourself that went on to do other things. Um, was there something about the MMC that made it a good training ground for young folks to grow up to these seemingly well-adjusted adults with, you know, successful careers? I, I truly believe so. Yeah, it was a super safe environment. You were just loaded up with knowledge. I mean, we were in this location. And again, we were t- there's something to being taken out of your environment. So like it wasn't like, okay, we're going home now. I'm going to my house down in Encino or whatever. It was like we were literally taken out of our environment. So we were living and breathing this experience at all times with our cat, with our crew. And a lot of the crew relocated. So they it was they had the same experience. So we would have like, you know, big crew picnics and, and outings and and, you know, we could, I could just say, hey, man, let me how do you run that camera? All of a sudden, you know, you, the guy would have his arms around you, you'd be propped up on his lap and he'd mm-hmm. be showing, OK, here's here's the focus. Here's how you switch the camera lenses. Oh, wow. You know, and you're like, whoa, where, where would I get this kind of experience right now? All my friends yeah. back home or in junior high, you know, you know, and trying to the cool thing would probably be to be in shop or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, built, I'm, 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 I'm doing an engine. And I'm like, wow, this is really insane. We're growing up in a, in a, in a theme park, for God's sakes. <laughs> well, so, you know, and to that end, since you're, you know, you're just a young teen at the time you start, you know, and you're working with uh, adult actors like uh, Moeva and, and Fred Newman. And I remember Fred from when he hosted Livewire on, uh, was it Nickelodeon? Mm-hmm. I imagine, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll ask you a question this way. Did they, especially Fred in particular, seeing how silly he's, certainly on, you know, the appearances I've seen him in interviews, did he give you as maybe a skewed perspective as how adults would behave or, or, or could be? He was like the parent. So when our parents weren't allowed to be on set or they were always allowed to be on set, but they weren't always on set. Um, Fred was almost like that big brother or that, you know, yeah. I don't want to say a parent cause you know, I don't want to give it like the uncool vibe, yeah. but he was like the guy, we all wanted to hang out with Fred and he was, you know, he was funny. And again, it was almost like when I was at those competitions, Fred's in the back and he's teaching you how to do like, you know, <laughs> you know like all these crazy noises. And you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And he was just so fun to be around. And that that kind of stuff um, was the stuff that took us out of the um, the hard work, because even, even though everything I've kind of painted for you sounds really, like a really charmed experience. It was a lot of hard work and there weren't, you know, there weren't a lot of SAG rules for uh, labor laws and Mm. all sorts of things. We we were, we were working hard, you know, and we were doing a show at that point, we were doing a show a day. So we would be doing, maybe we were coming, the audience might be loaded in later that this afternoon and we'd be doing a show today that we'd have to camera block after lunch. But meanwhile, today we might've done school this morning and we still had to rehearse all the numbers for tomorrow and record the songs and you know it, it, there was just so much pre-tape stuff and just you know, get, mark's got to be pulled out to do a voiceover for tomorrow's show it, you know now as an adult i don't think i could do it like the, our minds were just like machines we were really and that's what kind of i think set us up for success later on like you know we really had this fun experience 
but it was a constant training ground. And we all came from our own experiences of being kind of, I don't want to say the best of our own little locations, but right. we were really, we were really good wherever we came from. We were chosen or picked out and, and, uh, we were all really good at what we did, but then we were all stuck in a room together and it's like, Oh, <laughs> wow. I got, I'm not so good at this. I got to pick it up. <laughs> or, Hey, how did you do that? Hey, show me that. And we all literally just embraced each other and built each other up. And that's the cool part. We still do it to this, to this day. You know, I still, Hey, Tony, you need some background vocals. I got you, man. You know, or yeah. if somebody needs something, we got it. Hey, film me something. I got it. You know, whatever we need to do for each other, we're, we're, we're a great support system for each other still to this day. Yeah. And everybody knows, obviously, you were in the you were in the first if three or four was it four seasons of the show? Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. The fourth season, we got pulled out to do the party with Hollywood Records. Right. Oh, right, right, and, right. We, well, we were still under contract, so we kind of would still do like interstitials within the show. So you might see us pop on, like, "Hey, here's the party on our right. tour bus," you know. Yes. Or they later on after the show, they would be maybe announcing where we were going to be, like, "Hey, the party's going to be in Pueblo, Colorado today." <laughs> and, but and, if you think about it, that was yeah. like our internet. That's the cool part. We didn't have the internet to promote our shows, but oh, this right. the Disney Channel promoted these shows. So wherever we went as the party, we had, yeah. you know, mad fans because of that. Yeah. So and I see. I do have a question from. So thinking about the break that you took from the show, you're doing the party. Obviously, I say break. It's break from being on the show officially. I mean, you know, you didn't. It doesn't seem like you took a break in the sense that you stopped working hard. Right. Um, but you were off the show for a couple of seasons, uh, and then you came back and and. Um, a fan question. This is from Ayana Grady. I'm going to say Ayana. Let me know if I mispronounce your name. Why did you choose to come back for the seventh season? And I'll add to that, uh, what was it like to return as an adult this time, you know, after you had been uh, one of the child stars? Uh, you know, uh, well, first off, we were kind of in our own little bubble in in, uh, in Florida there doing, you know, the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah. So that experience was amazing. So then I get to the party and then get to the party and the party was a little bit of a bigger picture, even though it doesn't seem so now because so much light has been shown on the Mickey Mouse Club. But back then, there were people who liked the Mickey Mouse Club, and then there was everybody else. Mm. So when we were when we were in the party, uh, we would actually have they would actually put our stuff out to radio without our picture on it, because as soon as they would say we were a Disney band or we were from the Mickey Mouse Club, they would not even listen to it. Right. Um, now. Now it's something that literally gets me in a room. If you know, if I needed to go, like, yeah, I was on a Mickey Mouse club, they'd be like, whoa, whoa, hold on, tell me about it, come on in, you know. But it, it took a lot of time to make that a cool thing. Yeah. Um, but why did I come back? I got to Hollywood for a while. I dipped my toe in what that experience is, and now I'm in the big pond, and there's thousands of people. And I realized quickly that you know what, I have a home I can go back to right now. Let's let me see what you know what 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 what's going there. And um, the Disney Channel offered it, and maybe they were just they were just kind of evolving and making a change. Maybe Fred was was done. I don't even know the situation right. honestly, um, but they brought us back as uh, as co-host uh, uh, Tiffany and I, it and um, and it was amazing. Honestly, it was yeah. it was a lot of fun to kind of come back and experience that as the older guy. Yeah, you know, it's amazing that you know when you were on the show. I guess you started out you probably thirteen or so, right? And then in this, this in the few years, four or five years since you're come, you're back in our in our lives just as humans, so much happens between being you know thirteen and being you know nineteen. Uh, I, I imagine your perspective is is different now that you're you know you're able to see these children that you were just a few years ago. I mean, uh, yeah, it's hard. It was hard to catch up because our our perspective was so skewed. You know, all of a sudden it's like 
you know, you have a guy going, who do you want to work with? And we're like, yeah, we want to work with Dr. Dre and Teddy Riley. And they're like, okay, let's get them on the phone. And all of a sudden, yeah. easy ease on the phone and you're in a conference call with easy, you know, and then when you then, then when you get out of that world and it's all on you, we we had every skill in the book. We could sing, dance, like you said, juggle, blah, 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 blah. But, we, you know, we didn't have that like, OK, now you have now you're your own entrepreneur. These kids today, you know, because they're built, they're branding themselves and kind of putting themselves out on the Internet. That's actually a skill, a great skill they're learning how to do. You know, they're mm-hmm. learning how to to build their company, at, which is themselves. Right. True. And uh, it was hard for me to do is go out there and say, hey, I'm Chase. I'm talented. I always had somebody representing me or someone going, hey, here's where you're going today. Here's a note under the door. Here's my schedule. All right, I'll be there. And I did my job and I did it good, but it was that was the tough part. So yeah. that's that was why going back to the Mickey Mouse Club was a no-brainer. Um, you know, and you know, and, and then it only lasted uh, what a season after that. They said it was actually gonna last a little couple more seasons. Yeah. But you know, seven seasons is a good run for any show. I mean, like you said, the, the 70s version went for six months. Yeah. The original the original version only went, you know, for a short period of time too. And it's and it's iconic. Yeah. And we did over we did well over three hundred shows. Um, in seven seasons, you know, because in the beginning, like I said, we were doing a show a day, like a soap opera, yeah, which is that's, literally insane. That's tremendous. And so, and so, speaking about the play and all these folks that you got to work with, you know, I thought it was it's remarkable to me and surprising. And, and folks that aren't fans probably wouldn't realize this. And me, I guess real fans realize this that your first big hit is a, a cover of a Dawkins song. <laughs> when I think of Disney, I could and would pick a band from the 1980s. Dokken would be the last thing that I think you know they're on some sort of Zen diagram that they'd be some sort of overlap. How is it that Dokken, this you know hard rocking band of the 1980s, would make for a good uh, party song? That was one of those things, man. Honestly, <laughs> we would get presented so many songs, and we got presented that song, and we had no idea. We had really, we were honestly ignorant to the fact that it was a, a Dawkins song mm-hmm. until we really started to dive in. And and the producer <clears throat> Julian Raymond um, is actually a rock and roll guy, and he, they kind of would set me up with him usually because um, he was kind of the rock and roll guy. But he was the in-house producer for Hollywood Records, and uh, it was kind of his brainchild, man. I think it was his way of kind of putting in some of his influences into what he was maybe forced to do <laughs> by the label. <laughs> they were probably like, "Man, Julian, you got to do this one," and he's like, "Ah." <laughs> You know, but, you know, it came out so cool. And years later, I got to meet Doc and, 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 and I walked up to him at a NAMM show and I was like, you're never going to believe this. man!" And, <laughs> and they were like, bro, we have that on our shelf. You, you, they were like, you charted it higher than we did. And I was like, oh, my God, no way. That's so funny. Um, but that was super cool. I'd say great, great if we could have Doc and cover now a party song. That'd be something. Um, <laughs> so another fan question here. Speaking of the party, um, this question comes from Debbie, Debbie Kusky. Do you uh, still find yourself listening to uh, the the old party songs? Oh yeah, well you know I didn't for a long time, um, yeah. but now now I do. It brings back you know music brings back memories, and uh, I'm sure when you guys when you guys would hear those songs, you remember where you were or what you were wearing at some oh, of those yeah. times. But but you know I get the memories of what studio we were at or what jokes we were you know doing or you know something that might have happened in that in during that time period so you know yeah memories flood me when i hear that stuff and i i so wish it could be on the air and that's i know a lot of the fans want to know why it's not on itunes or out there to to get it's all you know they have to go rob ebay kind of thing but yeah. that is so not in our control and i wish it was it's such a hard hard thing to explain but um hollywood records owns all those masters and uh, it's on them. And, uh, you know, they might have so many acts they don't even remember us at this point because they've, they've totally changed hands uh, many times within the, the executives over there. So they, they might not even know what they have in the vault. Right. 
Um, but yeah, we had over 40 songs. I know I, I have over 40 songs, I think in my, in my computer that I, last I looked, I had never even done a full count, especially with like the remixes and all the fun stuff. But yeah, they had so many, so many celebrity producers on there. The Stephen Brays that did Madonna and, you know, the Elliot Wolf who did Paul Abdul and yeah, yeah, like you said, the Teddy Riley, then Dr. Dre's yeah. and, and during that time, we were literally with the, the DOC and Snoop, and I mean, everybody. There was a lot more people involved in that than were even credited. Again, there could be wild. It, it could be uh, there's some kind of trivia question we could phrase that involves uh, asking about the party and like who didn't they work with? You know, <laughs> put Dr. Dre, put Snoop Dogg in there. We'll slip someone else, and that's obvious. It would be hard to, for most people who aren't fans to, to imagine that, you know, again, like you said, a, a group that was born out of a Disney show that worked with all these fantastic producers and creators, some of which were associated with, you know, gangster rap. Um, <laughs> right. So why did, you, right. why did you take a break from listening it, listening to the party? Uh, from listening to the party? Yeah, you said you didn't listen to it for a while, and then you... Uh, I, I honestly fell into the trap, or not trap, that I just fell into the time that we were all in, and... You know, being a 17, 18 year old kid at that time, uh, when we did our last album there, <clears throat> I didn't realize everything comes back around. You know, mm. no one really, no one gave me that lesson. I just thought, you know, everything keeps, continues to move forward and moves on to the next thing. And at that very moment, I mean, Pearl Jam was hitting, Lenny Kravitz was hitting um, his first album, not, you know, the later stuff, but I mean, you know, he was just breaking out all of a sudden you had Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and it was the, it was the Seattle sound was taking over. And I loved that stuff. I was like, Oh, this is great. This is what we got to do. And, and, and of course, you know, to the label, they're like, no, 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 you guys are my kind of, you guys are my pop band, you know? Yeah. And we were like, well, we want to evolve and eh, you know, this is a business, you know? So, um, I think Didi was the first one to say, you know what? I, well, I think that I think we should, we should be done. And, and Damon had already uh, left at that moment. He had, uh, so it was literally us four at that time. So it just kind of started to dissolve. And we were like, we didn't really see where it could go. Right. Because everything on the radio was, you know, Pearl Jam and, and all of that, which, like I said, I, I loved. And I, I was wearing the flannel shirts and I was even wearing those during the concerts. I, kinda, <laughs> I had the long hair and I, I was kind of that guy. And, and even though I'd sing R&B and pop, um, you know, I, I loved that. And so I, I think I just, you know, I lived it and we, we played it every night. I think I, I don't want to say I was tired of it, but I was just kind of, you know, growing up and trying to experiment and seeing what, you know, what life is about. So I just it fell by the wayside. But, you know, the fans have just kept, kept being there and kept and I've tried to keep in touch with everybody. And, you know, I try to get on there and wish people happy birthdays or, or even sneak a call in when someone is, uh, you know, feeling low or sick, you know, Facebook column or, you know, surprise people every now and then. I try, I try to be that guy. I try to be accessible. Um, and I realized we were accessible to them when we were younger, even though we didn't even realize it because we were literally our names on the TV. I was Chase. So when people come up, they know Chase because they watch me on TV. And it's such a weird thing because they don't really know me. Um, but I was Chase. I was, I didn't play a character. Uh, it's such a such a weird dynamic. That phenomenon. I, I think about this occasionally because you know I fan out about certain people that I'm you know uh, that I, I'm a fan of. I'm using the word fan a lot there, um, but there is this weird I don't know mystique. There's this weird magic that happens where you see someone on a film or a television show where you feel like you know them and. They don't know how. They don't know anything about you. It's got to be really bizarre to have some <laughs> folks come up to you and. 
Yeah. You can only hope you can only hope they're as cool as you hope, right? As you wish. But (laughs) but I think I think all of us in the Mickey Mouse Club are very humble people and we 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 recognize, you know, the love we've gotten and we've all we're all older now, so we've all had our ups and downs and we're 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 more thankful for things we might not have been thankful before. Um, you know, we there's a good bunch there. Really a good bunch. Based on the positive experience that you had. Uh, and we hear so many, you know, again, statistically speaking, it seems like such a large number of, of everybody. We've, we haven't heard any bad stories. You know, there's other television programs where we have child actors where you hear these terrible things that, they were, unfortunately, because they were maybe deprived of something from their childhood, their adult life is, you know, is challenging. Um, but but if to, the, to a large extent, this isn't true of, of, of your experience in, the, in your cast members. Is it something that you think as a result, you know, your young children are 13 someday, they want to be on some, whatever the, maybe they're reviving the MMC then. It'd be really exciting to have one of Chase's kids on there. Is it something you would be supportive of or? I mean, I, yeah, I would obviously be supportive of anything my kid, my kids wanted to do. Yeah. As far as pushing them into it, I probably wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it's, it's, uh, it takes a certain kind of person because it's, it's not, it's, there's never uh there's never a promise, you know, that's always, it's all, there's always an, an unknown hanging over your head, you know? And even, even now, like this COVID-19 thing, you know, yep. anybody who's an actor or an event planner or a, that does concerts, I mean, you're out, <laughs> you're done for now. And it's just so scary. And, um, you know, to have a, a to, some people just go, you know what, I'd rather have a normal job. I want to know when I'm showing up. I know I want to, I got health, health insurance coming yeah. And there's a, you know, and my wife's like that, you know, and, and so it, that, it scares her what I do even. Yeah. Um, but, but it's, it's so ingrained in what we do and, you know, we've always gotten by that way and, uh, it just, it just takes a certain kind of person, but I would definitely support them in it. Cause my parents, God love them, yeah. picked up every, everything from Oklahoma and, and marched me down to Florida mm-hmm. so I could have that, that experience, you know? Right. Hey, and you got out of Oklahoma. <laughs> right. And Oklahoma, don't get me wrong. Oklahoma is beautiful, but you know, for a, for a performer, I was already doing it all. I was I was singing on the the Capitol step. My my thing was doing patriotic numbers. So mm-hmm. my dad had me doing. He's like, "You want to win? You want to win, son? Let me tell you something. You do a patriotic <laughs> number." And he was right. I started doing America the Beautiful. I started winning, 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 winning. So I was like, "Oh my god, my my dad's onto something." So I, all of a sudden, I would be, I'd be doing like uh, the state capitol and and singing for the governor, and I would sing for the local theme park there before the fireworks every summer. And so I was kind of doing all the things you could do there. And, you know, but there's just not, how do you grow? You know, the, the people mostly were like, okay, you can either go to Silver Dollar City or you can go work at Six Flags. Yeah. And I was kind of <laughs> like, okay, where am I going to go? I don't know. You know? So <laughs> and speaking of, you know, the situation for our world today, that's got so many performers at home. We've got a question from a couple of folks. Let's see, Rachel Lang asked a version of this in Jazz Ponce or Ponce. I'll say, um, we know we had the MMC 30th anniversary last year. They're wondering if there's any chance for any Zoom type reunions of the party or MMC, you know, and, and soon, I guess upcoming, you know, considering uh, that everyone's stuck at home, maybe there's an opportunity to get some folks together. You know, it, it, we, we definitely could. Um, that's something that it's kind of been kicked around a little bit. Uh, I'm trying to dig deep and seeing what we could do something for the, the party. I know that the party reunion's coming up quick and uh, I'd love to see something done there. The hardest part is that we're all just so spread out, you know, and it's, yep. it's, it's super tough to, uh, to get things done, but Hey, I'm all, we're all in and we, you know, we're all in for our fans anytime. Uh, and I hope they realize that after coming to that reunion, because <laughs> we, I lost, you know, I lost years of my life doing that one. 
um, you know, it was more than just an event. It was like three or four events in one, you know, with the MegaCon and, and the stuff at Epcot and, uh, of course, our VIP events at the Hyatt. I mean, it was it was nuts. And, and for us to take that on, it was like, you know what? It's like we have to do it. We'll regret this forever if we don't, right. you know. Yeah, and and so I'm so glad we had a lot of fun. And you say it took years because you were, I mean, you were, you know, leading that effort to get these things done. Is that right? I I led the effort and then uh, my buddy Dale jumped in, Lisa Kanata jumped in, a good buddy of mine that's not a Mickey Mouse Club uh, guy, but he's, he was a fan and he's a friend and uh, his name is Rick Morris and he's a business investor and he came in and gave us some business savvy and kind of helped, helped, helped keep the team going as well. Um, but yeah, I literally sent an email out to everybody. I'm like, it was a, about a year and a half before. And I'm like, you know, this is coming up and it's going to come up quick and we'd be idiots if we didn't do this. Mm. And, uh, you know, we started a, a thread going and started brainstorming and, uh, and it, it was wild. It just kept growing, just kept growing. And, uh, you know, a huge, a huge success. Um, here's another fan question that's appropriate from Roseanne DeCanto. Are you, and that's my cousin actually, who's the big, you know, she's got, a, she's got a YouTube channel for MMC and everything. Uh, are you surprised? You know, so you've got this huge turnout for the reunion. Are you surprised that 30 years later, folks are still so passionate about uh, the show and about the party, about all your work? I, it didn't surprise me. Cause like I said, I've been engaged. I've been engaged as soon as I, as soon as my space turned on, I was like, man, I want to reach out to people because I know they're out there. A lot of the other uh, Mickey Mouse club guys did not experience that or did not do that. They've been in their own, doing their own thing. Some of me might even have left the business and done other things. Mm-hmm. And uh, they know they have fans, and they know, but some of them might have only been on for a, a season or two, and so they didn't think they might have even been cared about. Mm. Um, but what's funny is they're like the white buffaloes, you know. They're, people <laughs> want to see them more. They're like, no, I want to see Brayden, <laughs> you know, and like, and Brayden, like, what? So, and and even Moeva, Moeva, I almost got Moeva there, and you know, mm. she was like, she's like, people know who I am, and I'm like, oh my god, Moeva, are you kidding me right now? Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. You're a Disney icon. Um, but yeah, it was it was awesome, and I think I think a lot of the Mickey Mouse Club members were surprised, and even were like afterwards, like I had no idea it was going to be like that, which was the ultimate compliment. Right. Well, hey, uh, to many more reunions of the MMC and the party. Amen. Uh, we're certainly grateful for the work that you did and how it's touched so many people. You know, we're you're not surprised. We are grateful and amazed and uh, certainly appreciate it and appreciate your time today. Oh, Will Ray, I appreciate you guys, man. Thanks for keeping it going during this time and, uh, and, you know, keeping promoting the eighties. I mean, the the best times ever. I mean, come on. Yes. The greatest movies ever, the greatest music ever. Come on. You guys are on to something. <laughs> that was fun today. It was, it was different for the first time we took our, at least the first half of our broadcast live on Facebook. And that was a lot of fun. And I was going to ask you what we what we learned today or what we proved today. And I know in the very least I learned that, you know, even older folks like ourselves can master the technology of this new generation. But uh, that has nothing huh. to do with the 1980s or uh, TV stars turned singers. True. But what does, yeah. we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt wow. that the 1980s had the most actors yes. with little singing talent who had the guts to go out and make a record. Oh, yes. It was about the courage and bravery. That's right. Yes. And ambition. Yes. And look, and mm-hmm. just like, you know, hey, we're talking about famous people that had all those, you know, abilities, but children of the 1980s like ourselves and all of our, and our listeners and the folks that join us in Facebook Live, we all share those traits because we survived that decade. We done good. All right, so hey, we will talk to you next time and maybe even live on The Idiots. 
fantasía. 